0: This is Mercy Harper, Writer for Research Services at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, I'm here with Deep Parekh, founder and managing partner at Episteme, to talk about building a data strategy for environmental, social, and governance concerns, or ESG. Welcome to the podcast, Deep.
1: Thanks, Mercy. Thanks for having me.
0: I've also got Marisa Brown here. She's APQC's Senior Principal Research Lead for Supply Chain Management. Good to see you, Marisa. Hi, Marcy. Hello, everyone. So I think we're at this really interesting crossroads when it comes to sustainability and ESG strategies, and in particular, the reporting aspect of those strategies. We at APQC wrote about sustainability reporting all the way back in 2014. But back then, I think a lot of organizations kind of felt like they were getting in line for a roller coaster. They were thinking, yes, I want to do this. But in that immediate moment, they were just sitting there waiting and watching. And as the years ticked by, a lot of organizations were more than willing to let others kind of cut in front of them in that line and hop on that roller coaster faster. Even though everyone around them, especially their customers, was saying, Get on with it, get on with it. But now we're really reaching that tipping point where organizations need to strap in and take this journey. And for a lot of folks, I think the most terrifying thing about hopping on that ESG roller coaster, if you will, is the data piece. There's so much data and so many different kinds of data to consider and combine that with all the jargon around ESG and all the different standards and regulations from com- that are coming from like so many different directions it's just really overwhelming and that's why I'm so happy to have you on deep to help demystify this stuff for folks but first could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey with sustainability
1: uh, so first of all so I've led a bit of an unconventional life a uh, bit of a corporate Vagabond life, if you will. Um, Originally from Bombay in India, moved to the US when I was 18, did college at the University of Wisconsin, engineering background, uh, went to New York City, got a job at Unilever in supply chain, did my master's while I was there in operations management and then left uh, to join Ernst & Young. went through the whole consulting bit, uh, moved to the dot-com gig for a while, raised a bunch of money, started a SaaS company when it was not called SaaS at the time, and uh, did a variety of things. And in, in any case, ended up in um, in, a, in a career in consulting, in operations consulting, um, which uh, I founded my own business and brought on a couple partners on board, uh, which uh, led us to expand through Latin America and we were consulting in the Americas uh in operations and then um at some point i had a daughter and thought i can't do this sustainably so i had to quit and uh, sold my shares to the other partners and moved to switzerland to do a phd in business model innovation and reconfiguration Um, that led me to do work with a variety of companies in europe uh on their strategies and their business models and um actually long story short, while I was doing that uh, in around 2014-15, I used Unilever as a case study to study their business model. The collateral knowledge I gained from this was actually that um, their business model was 100% intertwined with their sustainability model. It was basically one and the same thing. Um, And that's what stimulated me to start down this road thinking, wow, this is incredible. I didn't think this was possible. I thought sort of corporate strategy and, and sustainability were sort of two different things. And then you layer one on top of the other, but it was completely integrated. And that's actually what drove me to be in this area um, in a, in a just, in a, uh, just completely dived in basically. That's so interesting. So do you mind starting us off here with the basics of ESG data? talk maybe a little bit about the main types of metrics that organizations need to consider for ESG reporting? Sure, so um, let's look at this in a couple of dimensions, right? So one is the company reported information, and this is the metrics per se, right? And so um, this, this comes in, in two varieties. One is the is the voluntary disclosure that's aligned to ESG reporting frameworks, like, like the usage of energy, efficiency, water usage, uh, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and then there's information that's not aligned with ESG reporting frameworks, like, for example, community development, education benefits for employees, community support, uh, which which obviously varies a lot in terms of format, content, uh, context, and meaning. Uh, so those are the two things then there's of course, there's corporate governance disclosures like the board members, political activity, uh, race and gender statistics um, but again, this is slew of data that are voluntary and not mandated right so there's a lot of variability around how people report these things and then as a as a second uh, Prong of this, there's this whole area around risk management, right, which is very sparsely quantified, much less reported at best, and 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 far from standardization. Okay, and 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 this includes things like your product risk, for example, end of life or in life risks. For for example, think about your uh, exploding batteries, right? Um, then there's macro risks, things like corruption, things like water stress. Uh, There's regulatory risk, which is around things like your greenhouse gas reporting. And then there's events risks like Spillage, toxic gas emissions, those kinds of things, which you don't expect to happen but often do, right? And so the first is pretty straightforward, right? The 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 stuff that 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 company reported because this is sort of happening already, and this is just an extension of the list of things that they need to report on. But but the but the second is much more difficult, mm-hmm. and uh, not not very well understood yet.
0: That is a lot of uh, pieces of data all over the place. Um. So you had this really interesting idea in your paper and we'll, we'll link that in the description, um, if that's okay. But you were speaking about how this data lives all over the place. So there's this idea that we need to modularize how we gather it. So how do you do that?
1: So um, if, if, if we take one step back, right? So before modularizing, data gathering, reporting, you, you actually have to make sure that your processes actually produce this data right and they can only do so by actually performing the actions necessary to be able to enable the data to even exist so for example you know you can't report on supplier labor practices unless you actually embed that activity of looking at supplier labor practices into your source to pay process right and so that's that has to you know that's that's a start And then the key to the modularization question is really um, embedding these activities and metrics into the core processes and the enabling and governing processes at your sort of L3 to L7 levels in your APQC methodology. That's really where the nuggets lie because it's not done at that high corporate strategic level. It's really needed at that very um uh, it's at that very granular level uh because otherwise what you're reporting is 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 probably not close to reality yeah um you don't need specific tools or processes for the reporting because honestly reporting is reporting it's a question of capturing data through the processes that you that you implement and that you uh, that you perform as a you know as a as a business so there's a whole set of corporate capabilities that also needs to be created around risk management and risk-related reporting. Today, when you have a procurement professional who is doing procurement, rarely do they think about supplier risk. They may have contingency plans that we have X supplier and Y supplier you know, in two different locations in, play, in case like one burns down or, or what have you, but um, you, you really need to embed these in the processes themselves so that they are reported organically and truthfully by the person who's actually doing the supplier audits, not as an ex post event. Yeah.
0: Very interesting. So you mentioned some of the supplier risk and things like that. And, and we are definitely seeing that supply chain is a big piece of this esg data puzzle what do you see as some steps that supply chain leaders can take now
1: to help lead their organizations into the future of esg reporting super so um so let's let's think about the e the s and the g sort of separately so that we can sort of you know create some sort of uh you know some some uh, some more more sense into this right so um i'm, I'm just First, gonna talk about this the centrality of the supply chain in this ESG reporting world. Um, you know, on the environment bit, um, a recent MSCI report on this topic mentioned that something like 93% to 95% of environmental impact of a company is through the supply chain, okay? So that's that's a huge thing. Um, on, the, on the social part, according to the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics and ILO, um, something like 37 to 40% of the global workforce is employed in jobs related to supply chain activity. Okay? Um, and on the governance part, um, this is a 2019 report from the Financial Times. Something like half a trillion dollars of market value was wiped off of U.S. companies due to supply chain-related ESG issues on governance. Right, so people using child labor, people not giving rights to the uh, um, the labor force, the employees, employee discrimination, and you know all, all of that stuff. Right, so so you know you can you can see how central uh, the supply chain is, and the stakes are very high for the supply chain. Um, not just in terms of the, of, of applying data and, and reporting and whatever, but the actual impact of the supply chain on the business and on the world is, is really, is, it can't be understated, okay? So, so that said, um, and, and I hope I'm not scaring off the listeners at this point, but uh, in, 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 in terms of immediate action for supply chain leaders, I'm going to split it up into the, uh, the five key components of your supply chain plan, source, make, uh, make, deliver, and return. Um, on the plan side, you need to run your supply chain optimization models, including your suppliers and customers, because you are now um, uh, liable for uh, reporting on the emissions, uh, both at the supplier side and at the customer side. Okay, so you need to you need to include the extended supply chain into the mix when you're doing your supply chain optimization. The second is, you know, we we all take inventory for granted uh, that it's a part of business, Um, but you need to price. What is the cost of high service levels in terms of emissions, in terms of of uh, of the uh, of the social costs uh, and of the reactionary costs? Um, with customers when they want very high customer service levels, right? And perhaps you need to think about charging them or or putting a premium on expedited uh, shipments that you might have and doing those kinds of things, not just on the basis of the cost of the shipment, but also on the basis of of, uh, having to offset the carbon footprint that you're emitting because of these expedites, right? Third thing on plan is to start calculating your cost of poor demand planning. Okay uh, because of the bullwhips, because of the high error being accounted in terms of business waste, in terms of unsalable inventory, resource mismanagement, and supply disruptions okay, in, in in terms of overtime labor is a particular hot spot for labor practice infractions, uh, and of course unexpected emissions through expedited uh, uh, expedited shipments. on the source part. Um, supply management needs to encompass, you know, detailed audits of your vendor, not in terms of just quality, but also labor contracts, and and to to make sure that labor practices are being followed, the pay scales are are legitimate and they're fair for the geography that it's in, okay, uh, and for the prosperity of the community around that. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, companies like Starbucks are doing a great job on sourcing of the of the coffee beans. They have a program called Cafe. Uh, I, I forget what the acronym stands for exactly, but it's about the equitable payment and treatment of labor and farmers uh, as a part of their ecosystem. Um, need to make sure that the suppliers are using the right energy profiles to meet your supply needs, and that the materials that they procure are conformable to the standards in terms of renewables and in terms of other certifications that they might be ne- that they might need. Um, on make, this is a big area, but frankly, a lot of the environmental factors like water cess, pollution, effluent treatment, already being accounted for through things like world class manufacturing, world class management, and your SHQ, right? So your safety, health, environment, quality. So those are those are a lot of that work is already being done, and it's being done well, in fact, right? Um, some of the bigger gaps are around the social factors around production operations. Um, uh, things like employee education, upskilling, uh, as well as creation of employment opportunities for the people in the community. Right. Um, a big one here is contract manufacturing because this is typically a blind spot for most companies because it's outside their four walls. Right. But but when you think of uh, when you know a large retailer. Um, requires you to send more of your product than expected, first thing you do is to contract the the contract manufacturer. And you don't know what labor conditions those folks are hiring people on the basis of. Uh, What is the quality of labor? Are they be treating fairly? Those kinds of things, right? So this whole contract manufacturing can be a bit of a minefield if not managed properly in the ESG world that we're living in. On the deliver side, of course, warehousing and distribution, uh, you know, have our big environmental weights here, um, but also need to pay attention to your third-party logistics folks or your freight forwarders that you use, who are not the preferred partners that you're going to, because the smaller guys are more susceptible to um, not using, you know, the 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 high-quality um, uh, trucks. Uh, or they might be, you know, high emitters. They might be poor labor uh, contractors uh, and, and things like that. So those are those are some hot spots. Um, the you know big areas are also around cold chain. Uh, so if you can somehow. Um, instigate your R&D folks to make products that don't require quite as cold storage as you as you need. That that is something that where supply chain can actually influence the innovation process for folks to come out with uh, with products that are that are that are much better and much easier to handle in terms of that. Lastly, uh, uh, I I will just say that I think the role of returns has never been more important than today, in terms of recycling and waste management. This has, frankly, always been treated like a bit of like a stepchild of distribution and uh, and logistics, but it does definitely need to be encompassed into the whole value chain. Um, The beer industry, you know, folks like AB InBev uh, are, are doing a great job where they actually do a forecast not only of the shipment to customer, but also the return shipment of empty bottles. And they do a fine job of that. And there's some learnings to be gained out of that. Yeah.
0: Thank you so much for breaking that down. Although I think, you know, maybe a few more, a few uh, supply chain leaders might still be thinking that sounds like a lot of stuff to do. That sounds kind of hard. <laughs> so I thought we would close out with a, a success story that conveys why all of this is worth it. So could you share your favorite ESG reporting success story with us? Sure.
1: Um, if I can do more than one, I'd be happy to. Totally. One, uh, the one that stands out in my mind is, of course, with Unilever um when i came across when i was interviewing you know some of the senior leaders i came across some of the procurement managers for example who you know, while discussing the business model components and, and 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 procurement being being a part of that internal operating model um they were able to dive into reports and drill down to show me sort of which suppliers were compliant which were not why they were not compliant what was the basis of this treatment if they had What were the contingency plans if they were to uh, have a bad reporting their system would automatically switch the supplier to you know another supplier and inform that supplier that they had an infraction and so they were being temporarily put on hold so they integrated not only the reporting into their into their way of working but also the reactions to the reporting that we're able to uh, help them make the right choices and decisions all the time. And frankly, at the end of the day, that's what reporting is all about: It's to, to not just to, to spit out numbers, but to actually act on them in some sort of a way, which is not quite as reactionary as you might want it to be. It's much more active. It's much more for. Uh, it, it's it's uh, it's with a um, with a with a proactive. Uh, means to be able to do that. So that's really one of my favorite reporting stories. The other one um, is another company I'm uh, I'm, I'm working with. It's a Korean company called Koh Young. That's K-O-H Young. Um, And they make equipment for inline inspections, like for tires and things like that, right? Um, And what they did is their headquarters are are, are in Asia. Um, Nobody is talking ESG in Asia but they sensed from, I think from 2017 or 18, that they sensed that the market is going this way and ESG reporting could be a competitive advantage for us. And so they started reporting you know, fully, you know, with, with complete transparency on all of these ESG metrics that they had um, and they were able to, to to create all these reports and create all of this this wonderful knowledge and insight into their business. And it's, in fact, become a competitive advantage for them because now as companies, as their customers are asking for more and more of this information, they're not caught off guard or on the back foot with this kind of thing. And so they've been very proactive in terms of reporting, uh, in terms of their scorecards, in terms of having all this data available for their customers.
0: Awesome. That is a great story. Um, Getting that competitive edge. I love that. Um, thank you so much for coming on the pod, Deep.
1: You're welcome. And it's been, been my pleasure to speak to you and to Marissa. Uh, Thanks, Merci.
0: So if our listeners want to learn more about Deep's work, they can check out epistemy.eu to learn more. Deep also shares a lot of great stuff on LinkedIn. Um, so look up Deep, correct? That's D-E-E-P-P-A-R-E-K-H. PhD, and you'll find him. Anything else you want to point folks to, Deep?
1: No, I think that's great. Thanks very much for the, uh, the plugs there, <laughs> the website <laughs> and all that. Um, I'm happy to um, engage with uh, your listeners on uh, any of these topics regarding ESG.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you all for listening. And once again, I'm Mercy Harper. And I'm Marisa Brown. Please visit apqc.org to learn more about our research, and we hope you'll have a great rest of your day.